Alrighty, so let's get to the factual meat, gristle, bone, and marrow of the matter and talk about the state of pre-revolutionary France. Now, just a caveat here, this is not going to be a buckshot scattering of facts, dates, names, and places, because there's tons of places you can get that information out there on the web. What we're here about is to create those deep and meaningful connections that have history make sense. I mean, I remember taking a course on Roman history in university that really was just store and disgorge names, dates, places, and labels, and I remember nothing of any of that. So if you want more dates, places, names, and events, then you can, of course, you know, go look this stuff up, and there's tons of places. We are here to give you the connections so that we can learn from the past and change the future. So the state of pre-revolutionary France in the late 1700s, Louis XVI became king of France. He inherited a country. Oh boy, I wonder if we've ever heard this before in history. He inherited a country, or in the present, deeply in debt due to previous wars and in part assisting the American Revolution. Now, of course, you know the Statue of Liberty came from France. France was very keen on the American Revolution, not because it was very keen on the principles of the American Revolution, but because it wanted to stick it in the nads to perfidious Albion to England, which had had, of course, rivalry for thousands of years, so they really wanted to stick it there. In the 1780s, a series of poor harvests, mounting national debt, and an inefficient tax system plagued France. And the whole decade, you got rising food prices, economic hardships, and near bankruptcy for the state. (laughs) Boy, I'm so glad we escaped all of that cycle, he said sarcastically. So... Between the 22nd of July, and you know we're getting close when we get to not just decades, but years, but months, but days. Between 22nd July and 6th August 1789, during the early days of the French Revolution, there was a widespread anxiety known as the Great Fear, or Grande Peur, en français. This widespread alarm was rooted in France's existing rural disturbances and an intensifying grain scarcity that season. Misinformation and disinformation was rife. There were circulating whispers of a conspiracy by the nobility to either deprive the masses of food or destroy them. And therefore, many villagers and urban residents became active across numerous areas. Since the late 1760s, harvests had become increasingly uncertain and crop yields fluctuated wildly. Now, I know this sounds odd, but it is true that the biggest human events can sometimes be driven by completely natural causes or at least influenced. In 1783, those damn Icelanders, oh, always with the Icelanders, there was a mountain, I guess a volcano, called Laki. In 1783, it erupted in Iceland, and therefore harvests across France became progressively worse, reaching a low point in 1788 when, in a truly biblical plague of weather, not only did you have all of this detritus from the Icelandic volcano, but summer hailstorms in 1788 killed many crops, and a subsequent drought in August killed a lot of the rest. So, for urban workers, this meant bread prices skyrocketed. And by 1789, the poorest were spending up to 80% of their income solely on bread. 
It's nice that that's changed to solely now housing costs. It's a big difference, big change. 80% of their income on bread. Now, we can talk about the natural disasters from here to eternity, but that's not the fundamental issue. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are natural disasters in the current world. Crops fail, there are hailstones in the summer, and I'm sure that the occasional volcano still erupts. It's not that these are not sufficient to cause the problem. The problem, of course, is caused by a highly inefficient, bureaucratic, economic mess of central planning and restrictions and controls and licenses. You know, we're going to talk about Napoleon soon. Napoleon's father ran a vineyard and lost his license to run the vineyard, I assume, because he didn't bribe the right people. And this completely crushed the family economically. Remember, laissez-nous faire, leave us be, laissez-faire. When French ministers would come to the capitalists and say, what can we do for you? They'd say, just leave us alone. Stop controlling us. Stop this maze of bureaucracy. Stop these endless paper cuts that has the entire economy bleed out on the gallows floor. So it's not that you have bad harvests. It's that you have restrictions on the importing of grain. Right? If there's a shortage of grain, you just import it or people import it and sell that way and blunt them. But there were massive controls in the economy, a massively inefficient, centrally planned, coercively controlled economy, which is very fragile, right? It's very fragile. If you're young, pneumonia is not so bad. If you're very old, pneumonia is bad because you're already weakened. So this cold, see how I'm working the cold in with the pneumonia? It's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, I've given myself goosebumps. But no, it's the economy as a whole. The French critic Hippolyte Dain said... I'm not going to do French accents for this because it wouldn't be French to the French. <laughs> but it uh, wouldn't be French accents to the French. The people... No, I won't. I won't. <laughs> it's tempting. The people are like a man walking in a pond of water up to his mouth. The slightest dip in the ground, the slightest ripple makes him lose his footing. He sinks and chokes. Maybe I shouldn't have made jokes about that. But yeah, it was rough. So unemployment also rode, rose sharply. 8 to 11 million people, or about a third of the population, was either unemployed or lacking other forms of of support. And again, this goes back to something I thought of as a kid when some kind soul gave me the 20 greatest disasters of the 20th century. And of course, one of them was the Great Depression, where, you know, 25% of people were out of work. And of course, I remember looking at these lines of people, like lines of shabby men in these shabby cloaks and weird caps, lining up soup kitchens, bread kitchens, and thinking, well, why can't they buy it? I mean, surely there's stuff that needs to be done in the world. Why can't they be hired? And, of course, it was because of restrictions in the hiring market, right? They just couldn't be hired. So a third of the population, either unemployed or lacking other forms of support. Now, this, of course, is what happens when you have a free market. To some degree, it increases productivity, and then that increases bureaucracy. Increased productivity is just the honey that brings the flies of the bureaucrats, right? And, sorry, I don't mean to insult flies, that's, that's rude. So you get a free market to some degree, you get increased productivity, and then you get increased bureaucracy and taxation, and you get an increase of population. And what happens then, the increased population is very sensitive to any vagaries in the weather because the system has kind of frozen in place and therefore any changes causes it to break, right, through bureaucracy and controls. So since 17, 
70, by the sort of late 1780s, France's population had increased by 2 to 3 million since 1770, which of course pushes the strain of resources to the limit. In one of the cahiers or grievances written before the Estates General of 1789, the villagers of La Carre succinctly described the population problem by writing, and I quote, the number of our children plunges us into despair. Remember, mostly Catholic country, birth control is prohibited, and so on. While many flocked into the cities looking for jobs, people also flooded into the countryside, desperate to find work on farms, right? You want to get close to the livestock, close to the milk, close to the food. But by the late 18th century, many peasant farms were barely large enough to support even a single family. And we talked about this before, due to the practice of splitting the land evenly among sons upon inheritance, many farmers were left with minuscule and often unfertile tracts of land. This led many landless peasants to seek work on the large farming estates owned by the nobility. Since these grand estates were often only able to provide work in the harvest season, laborers suffered in perpetual poverty the rest of the year. Many of the landless and unemployed people who flooded into the countryside were unable to find work. Some were then forced to turn to begging, traveling from farm to farm, often in fairly large groups. These vagrants would ask for crusts of bread or places to sleep for the night. Of course, some farmers are sympathetic, but many others were distrustful or outright fearful of them. Word began to spread, oh, the old internet rumor mill, word of mouth. Word began to spread that bands of vagabonds were knocking down fences or setting fire to farmers' fruit trees after being denied help. While some vagrants were allegedly swarming cornfields and cutting down unripe stalks of corn, threatening another year's harvest, right? You're starving. You'll eat the raw food, so to speak, even before it's ready. Some farmers nervously wrote to nearby towns asking for soldiers to be sent to protect their fields, while others blamed the church for not providing for the impoverished with money collected from tithes. It's a very big issue, right? People pay a lot of money to the church. And Dickens writes about this in Oliver Twist, of course. People pay a lot of money to the church, and the deal is that the church takes care of the poor. If the poor are showing up at your farm and stripping your cupboard bare... You're kind of mad at the church. We're going to get into why people got so enraged at the church over the course of the revolution because the murders and slaughters and outright tortures, unnecessary outright tortures that were inflicted upon the nuns and the priests was pretty unholy, savage, savage. We'll get to just how brutal that was. But people were mad at the church. Now, salt smugglers took advantage of the countryside chaos by traveling from farm to farm, bullying and terrorizing farmers into buying their contraband goods. These smugglers would often be followed by the gabalos, the hated tax collectors that were contracted out by the French government. The gabalos, these tax collectors, were often little better than thugs themselves, would beat and rob farmers suspected of purchasing black market salt, occasionally even hauling them off to jail. And of course, salt was important for keeping food somewhat edible, I wouldn't say necessarily fresh, but somewhat edible. And of course, there was a salt tax. And whenever there's a tax and people desperately need their food for the winter, they'll get black market salt, and then they get beat up by the tax collectors based on rumors. There's all rumors, and some of it may have been true. There's no way to know, of course, now, so many centuries later. But So as towns erupted into bread riots, townsfolk also made expeditions out to farms where they forced 
farmers to sell them their goods. Now, the answer, of course, to all of this, whatever the question is, doesn't matter what the question is in society, what's the answer? The answer is always the same. More freedom to maximum freedom. Maximum freedom we are still light years away from, but more freedom. They should have relaxed their controls. They should have reduced their disincentives for the importation of grain. But what happens is, of course, controls lead to rebellion. Rebellion leads to more controls, leads to more privation, starvation, leads to more rebellion, leads to more controls. And boom, next thing you get is a completely out of control psycho serial killer on steroids murderous revolution. So the idea of relaxing controls, of removing violence in order to combat violence is odd. Fight fire with fire and the whole world burns to the ground. So the paralysis of royal authority following the rise of the National Assembly and the storming of the Bastille, we get into that later, meant that farmers could not rely on police or soldiers. Ooh, interesting, right? Defund the police. The police are not effective. What happens in the absence of centralized police forces, at least in this case? And very often, right? The criminals run rampant, run wild. In the spring and summer of 1789, many farmers began to arm themselves and look to one another for protection, to local militias and protection. And of course, the farmers know that if the seed crop is stolen, if the crops are stolen, if the land is pillaged, that's it. You eat now, and you never eat again. Of course, if you're hungry to the point of starving, if you don't eat now, you never eat again either, because you starve to death. So, by the time it gets to this place, of course, you can make your arguments for the free market and so on, probably not going to be heard. But by the time it gets to this place, philosophers have to just run for the hills and hide away. Uh, this is not a place where you can not reason with people who are starving to death. They're going to come and take your stuff. And you can try and chase them off, but you'll probably have to kill them because they know they're going to die if they don't eat. So I guess the new fertilizer is human flesh. It's just tragic. Appalling. So by July 1789, farmers had banded together to defend their villages, some even standing guard at roads or bridges for weeks at a time. Now, of course, many of the reports of violence were merely the result of rumors, as reliable news from Paris became less frequent because of the revolutionary excitement occurring there. Rumors in the countryside increased in intensity. One such story told of the residents of Lyon fighting off hundreds of brigands, which included marauding Savoyards and escaped galley slaves. I'm sure there were a couple of zombies and demons thrown in as well. Another lurid tale told of a British squadron of warships haunting the channel, waiting for brigands to invade the port city of Le Havre and throw open the gates to them. As these rumors heightened tensions, many looked for a more tangible enemy to blame and found one in the clergy and aristocracy. Rumors, rumors, rumors. And, we're, of course, we're not past this at all. If you look at the number of falsehoods that people believe, the number of lies that people believe, in the modern world, even though we have infinitely better communications technology, it just seems to be a better lubricant for the passage of manipulative falsehoods. So, let's uh, zoom out a little bit as we want to do. 
and talk about the Estates General. The Estates General. Now, the Estates General was established in the medieval period. It's not a legislative body, like at least in the modern sense, but it's an advisory body. It was called upon occasionally to advise the monarch, especially in times of crisis. It was composed of representatives from three traditional orders or estates into which French society was divided. The first estate, right? You've heard of the fourth estate, media and so on. The first estate, ah, that's the clergy, right? This is the higher clergy, which are the bishops and the abbots, and the lower clergy all the way down to the parish priests. Though they were the smallest in numbers, the clergy were very influential because of their spiritual authority and they controlled the educational and charitable institutions. And of course, the divine right of kings, they validated the king's power. The second estate was the nobility. Now, they had numerous privileges, exemption from many taxes, and they had considerable influence in many aspects of government, and of course, in particular, the military. So, similar to the clergy, they're small, but powerful. Small number of people, but very powerful. The third estate. Okay, this is like the everyone else category. It's the broadest category, everyone not in the first two estates. Merchants, artisans, laborers, peasants. Though they made up the vast majority of the French population, their, represented, their representation in the estates general did not reflect their numbers, and their concerns often went unheard. So, you know, first estate, maybe 1%, second estate, maybe 1%, third estate, yeah, 98% of the population. And they paid pretty much all the taxes, including to the other estates. So each estate traditionally had one vote. So, sorry, don't mean to laugh. The first and second estates could easily outvote the third estate, despite 1%, 1%, 98%. Give or take, you know, it's not perfect. But uh, yeah, that's a situation that's going to cause some significant problems. And of course, endless cartoons of the third estate holding up the clergy and the nobility. And of course, the clergy, I mean, everyone understands the nobility is just kind of there to bang the wives of peasants and flog people who dis disagree with them and, you know, go to war and so on. But the clergy is supposed to be there out of virtue and helping the poor and helping everyone else and the salvation of souls. So if the clergy were to act against the interests of the masses, the masses are going to store up this resentment over time. So, All right, so first, remember first is clergy, second is aristocracy or nobility. So many within the elite echelons of the first and second estates, as well as some of the bourgeois, were swayed by these Enlightenment philosophers. And they showed some significant concern and sympathy towards the plight of the third estate. In the lead-up to the ill-fated French Revolution of 1789, which we're currently circling like a hungry shark, a prominent piece entitled, What is the Third Estate? emerged, penned by the French cleric Abbé Emmanuel Joseph Saïs. This work only added fuel to the already simmering tensions. Saïs wrote the pamphlet as a reply to an appeal by the finance minister who had asked writers to share their views on the organization of the Estates Générales. This publication became a pivotal piece during the early stages of the revolution with about 300,000 copies distributed and an estimated readership of a million. And what did he say? This is a quote. 
Who then shall dare to say that the third estate has not within itself all that is necessary for the formation of a complete nation? It is a strong and robust man who has one arm still shackled. If the privileged order should be abolished, the nation would be nothing less but something more. Therefore, what is the third estate? Everything but an everything shackled and oppressed. What would it be without the privileged order? Everything but an everything free and flourishing. Nothing can succeed without it. Everything would be infinitely better without the others. Ooh. Without the others. Hmm. I wonder if this sounds at all like Marx, that the workers should control the means of production, that the workers are the entirety of the production of the factory and the owners are parasites, and worker-led communes would be infinitely more productive, and that labor is the only source of value. We just should get rid of the capitalists, the bourgeois, and so on. Yep. The body, without the head, so to speak, this is how it was traditionally, the, the, the sort of body analogy of the Middle Ages was that the peasants were the body, the king was the head, the priests were the soul. There's lots of different ways of, of putting it. But there is, of course, that question. And that question is a big, big question. And it's currently being asked in many places around the world at the moment. People looking at the powers that be and saying, are you helping me? Are you necessary? Are you helpful? Are you positive? Am I better off with you in charge? So the Estates General wasn't just a political assembly. It was the boiling point of burgeoning political frustrations. And of course, the crux of the issue was in this antiquated voting structure. Of course, the first and second estates have the same voting power as the vastly populated third estates. The third estate aspired for a more representative system, advocating for votes counted per individual rather than by the estate's status. Yeah, I mean, 98% of the people want more than one third of the vote. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Now, of course, the question is, when people ask for more, do you violently repress them? This is back to Oliver Twist. Please, sir, can I have some more? Oliver Twist asks for more, and they threaten to ship him off to sea where they hope he will be bludgeoned to death, right? The priests and the beetles and the local worthies in charge of his spiritual edification. He, he dares to ask for more. And what happens? They try to get him killed. The adults try to get the child who asked for more killed. There's another example in Oliver Twist where Oliver finally gets angry as a little boy because people are insulting his mother and he attacks his bully. And then the beetle says, you know what the problem is? The problem is you gave him meat. Because you gave him meat, he had the energy to be violent. Think of parenting. How do people respond to demands for more? How do people respond with demands for more? Well, most parents, certainly at the time, of course it's still fairly prevalent, but most parents, if the kid asks for more, they tell the kid to shut up and obey. I want more of a say. I want more decision-making capacity. I want more 
food. I want more time. I want more attention. I want more resources. I want more money. I want more choice. Shut up, kid. Get back in place. When those in charge who consider themselves the parents are facing down those they control, who in their mind are the children, and the children ask for more in this very strong and powerful internal mental analogy, then what happens is the inner parents come out, face down the third estate, the 98%, and say, how dare you ask for more, you ungrateful wretches and whelps and scurvy, horrifying revolutionaries. The citizens are revolting. There's a reason why, at least in English, these two words, right? Revolting means rebellion against unjust authority, usually, or at least rebellion against authority. Revolting also means disgusting and hideous and full of putrefaction and so on, right? The idea of relinquishing power when faced with conflict was impossible in France due to due to the childhoods that everyone had experienced. You go to the priest and you say, I want a direct connection with God. The priest will often say, certainly in those days in France, the priest would say, you have to come through me. I mean, sometimes the mass was even conducted in Latin. You couldn't even understand what was going on. Just obey, obey, obey. You can't know directly you have to go through me. You ask for more, too bad. You have to ask from me, and I will respond with hostility. I want more freedom, says the serf to his lord. The lord then flogs him. I want more understanding, direct understanding of God, says the parishioner. The priest curses him. We want more freedom. We want more authority. We want more representation. The childhood rises up. The inner alter egos of the parents are activated. And you get the great smackdown. So, we're down to the week now again. You want more dates and places, details, characters, tons of places to get there. We're looking at a big picture here. From the 13th to the 17th of June in 1789, a truly incredible transformation took place. It wasn't just about the third estate anymore. Nobles, which of course with the first estate, a second estate, a significant segment of the clergy and the often overlooked peasants began to rally alongside everyone. It was an alliance without precedent in history. And when their cries for equitable voting were ignored, well, the third estate, in a move of bold assertiveness, proclaimed to themselves as the National Assembly, and they claimed to be the true voice of the French populace. This was a watershed moment, and it set the stage for the monumental French Revolution. And we're going to look into these churning tides and cross-currents of the Revolution. There's a constantly shifting sand dunes of power. Sorry to mix up my analogies (laughs) unconscionably. The official government of the land changed regularly, each including new complexities. Just for brevity, I'm going to introduce them here. What do we have? The National Constituent Assembly, sometimes termed, termed as the Nation Assembly, 1789 to 1791. 
the Legislative Assembly, 1791 to 1792. The National Convention took the reins from 1792 to 1793. And the rather ominously named Committee of Public Safety, which means private murder, emerged 1793 to 1794. Then power reverted back to the National Convention, 1794 to 1795. And it was all just a wild, wild bit of chaos. All right. What have we got? 20th June. Now we're down to a single day. 20th June, 1789. All right. Picture we. Picture this with me. A morning on the 20th of June. The representatives of the National Assembly are eager to meet, but they find themselves confronted with a locked chamber and soldiers standing guard. Their hearts pound. Their hands become sweaty the weight of possible betrayal looming over them. Some were concerned that Louis XVI could be orchestrating an attack upon them. As anxiety swelled, they moved to an indoor royal tennis court not far from the Grand Palace of Versailles. It is here, in this tennis court, in a symbolic act of unity, that a staggering 576 of the 577 representatives from the Third Estate pledged themselves to what we now call the Tennis Court Oath. Here they vowed, and I quote, not to separate and to reassemble whenever necessary until the constitution of the kingdom is established. Now, Louis XVI, of course, got word that all but one of the representatives made this Tennis Court Oath kind of out of options because of their unity, And he was pushed to merge the clergy, the nobility, and the third estate in the National Assembly, which was a strategic play, of course, to maintain his authority. But this became a symbolic act of defiance for the third estate, boosting their influence within governing circles. So, tennis court oath 20th of June, a little more than a month later, a little less than a month later, 14th of July, 1789. Days before, of course, the famous storming of the Bastille, Lawyer by training and journalist by trade, Camille Desmoulins, Desmoulins, had been rousing crowds to take up arms after spreading baseless rumors, suggesting that Louis XVI aimed to assault the National Assembly. Come July 14, 1789, Paris witnessed a seething crowd of approximately 60,000 individuals brandishing their weapons and demanding armaments at prominent locations like the Hôtel de Ville and Les Invalides. Their frenetic hunt at Les Invalides yielded them significant firepower. They got 10 cannons, 28,000 muskets, although they lacked the most crucial element in this case, they had no ammunition. So this impassioned and outraged mob didn't merely lay siege to the Bastille for armory. They were evidently repulsed by the prison's looming and sinister image. And this is a place of punishment a place where people were confined and punished, like the room, like the long-ago swaddles of their infancy, like hell itself threatened by their priests, controlled by punishment, enraged at punishment. This is the angry child breaking free and attacking those who confine. Did you know that, of course, the storming of the Bastille. Ah, the Bastille was a place where prisoners were kept and tortured and killed and starved and so on. Um, Did you know 
that the Bastille, at the time that the French mob stormed it, had only six prisoners. Six prisoners, that's it. The Marquis de Sade, which is, of course, where we get the word sadism, a former inmate had been moved out of mere ten days before, having repeatedly yelled to those outside that the inmates were facing slaughter. Now, do you know the Marquis de Sade? He was, of course, a hellish, outright degenerate. He's the most recognized, of course, for his writings that blend philosophical, pseudo-philosophical discussions with disgusting pornography, depicting sexual fantasies with an emphasis on violence, suffering, anal sex, which he refers to, of course, as sodomy, the rape of children, crime, and blasphemy against Christianity. The characters in his creation are often teens or children, and sadist sadism come from this, of course, just horrifying, horrifying stuff. And this is the guy who's rousing the mob, right? This is why I talk about the Ring of Power and Lord of the Rings as being sophistry. Now, in a bid for diplomacy, Marquis de Launay, the guardian of the Bastille, invited representatives from the mob in to negotiate. Seizing on his perceived vulnerability, the mob told him that the cannons on the wall scared the people and asked for them to be removed, which de Launay acquiesced to. As talks prolonged, the restless horde grew bolder. A faction breached the prison's defenses, instigating a chaotic clash. Now, why are people not negotiating? Or why are they only pretending to negotiate? Why are they just manipulating and using violence? Well, how were they raised? How were they raised? Were they raised with negotiation? Did they know how to negotiate? Were they trained with negotiating? Did the government negotiate with them? Did the nobles, the priests, the clergy, did they get negotiated with? Did their parents negotiate with them? You're asking them to speak a language they don't speak. You might as well ask them to break out into fluent Klingon or Esperanto or Latin. They don't speak this language. And there's a price to be paid for not negotiating with your children, which is that they will not be able to negotiate as adults. And they will view all negotiation as a preamble to what? All negotiation is a preamble to what? Uh, To violence, to punishment, to aggression. You've not taught them how to reason You've not taught them how to negotiate, and it comes back in this kind of way. Now, these talks are going on in the Bastille, but the mob's ranks are bolstered with the arrival of a rebel guard unit armed with two cannons. And Delaunay was still continuing to try to negotiate. Why? Because the nobility was raised in the Socratic method, in debating, reasoning, arguing. A lot of them were well-versed in law, which is reason, argument, debate, but they were trying to negotiate. He was trying to negotiate with a mob raised in a brutalized childhood with no capacity to negotiate. You can't just teach someone how to negotiate any more than you can just teach them a foreign language. So the mob is getting angry and angrier, whipping themselves into a dissociated frenzy where violence can occur. In a desperate bid... Delaunay threatened to detonate the Bastille's vast gunpowder stockpile, but the mob, with shouts of no capitulation, remained unyielding. Chaos ensued. The prison was ransacked, important documents discarded, and guards met with gruesome fates. Why? Because they are the punishers. 
like the parents. The rage against the parents gets translated into the rage against the police, the guards. I mean, people are getting mad at authority. 99 times out of 100, they're just getting mad at their own parents or teachers or preachers or whoever, right? A surviving guard recounted the nightmare, speaking of ferocious mobs and vengeful women cursing his existence. And we tried to find exactly what she said, but we couldn't. Delona's fate. The negotiator was equally tragic, paraded and brutally assaulted. He faced a grim end in Paris. The crowd's thirst for vengeance wasn't satisfied. Even with his murder, they subjected his body to further tortures and indignities. A cook crudely beheaded Delaunay and both <sighs> Delaunay's head and Mayor Jacques de Flessel's heads becoming grisly tokens paraded about in public. This unfiltered brutality epitomized the very ethos of the French Revolution, the mob's terrifying thirst for blood. And it wasn't an anomaly. It was a culmination of unchecked chaos prompted by childhood abuse and swirling rumors. Now, although the Third Estate had virtually established their own republic with these kinds of rebellions, their fervor showed no signs of waning. What was the core grievances of the 98% of the French citizenry? Well, unequal taxation and unequal governance that were dominated by the largely tax-exempt elite. The Third Estate's imminent victory was marked by the formation of the National Assembly and its royal endorsement. Yet in their eyes, the Bastille's chaotic breach was an emblem of triumph. After these events, a concerned Alexander Hamilton confided in the Marquis de Lafayette his apprehensions about the uncontrollable nature of the French populace. Why were they so uncontrollable? They'd never been reasoned with, they'd only been brutally attacked, abused, confined, brutalized. So, we get to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. In August of 1789, both the Abbe Emmanuel Joseph Saiz, author of the pamphlet that we talked about earlier with the 300,000 circulation and the million readership, and the Count Gabriel Mirabeau, they played pivotal roles in shaping the definitive rendition of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. This seminal document channeled the Enlightenment's ideologies, absorbing elements such as the value of the individual Rousseau's interpretation of the social contract and Montesquieu's call for separated government powers. Of special note, even though the French Revolution granted rights to a more extensive segment of the population, a differentiation persisted between individuals who acquired political rights and those who did not. Active citizenship was provided to Frenchmen who met specific criteria, including being at least 25 years old, paying taxes equivalent to three days of work and not falling out of the category of servants. As a result, during the period of the Declaration, the exclusive beneficiaries of these rights were males who owned property. Active citizenship refers to the engagement, participation, and proactive involvement of individuals in the social, political, and civic affairs of their community or country. This gave the vote to about 15% of the population. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine paying taxes equivalent to three days of work, not per week, per year, paying taxes equivalent to three days of work? Whew. Isn't that wild? 